Because I told you that there there's this uh, vet tech student who's like from England, and we were we were trying to like make a little Yorkie thing look okay before we sent it home after dental because it looked it looked like it had just been knocked out, drunged, <laughs> and run through the ringer. Because both she and I are like <laughs> trying to get the mats out of him, and like I didn't I didn't know that this was a saying. She was like, "You look like you've been run through the hedge backwards." Have you heard of that saying? Uh, I mean, if I have, it hasn't stuck out to me, so no. Yeah, and I was like, what? That that one I've never heard before. And she's like, oh, yeah, you, oh, that's not a thing here. That's right. And then the doctor, one of the doctors was like, uh, what? what's that one word that you guys use when a woman's like a slut? <laughs> and like the, the texting, she's like, you mean a skank? And she's like, no, there's another one for it. I'm like brushing the Yorkie slowly going, I don't know how I feel about any of these words, guys. It was quite the conversation where like the feminist is just sitting here trying to bite her tongue while the doctor's like, no, when a girl's a skank. Uh, was it slag, by the way? Oh, I don't know. We didn't get that far. Uh. I just, I like kind of was just like, I'm going to take this dog away now. Dad's here. (laughs) (laughs) pick up the dog like don't worry you've been a very good boy (laughs) he was a very good boy he was a sweetheart oh that's good welcome to another episode of my favorite feminist my name is megan and i'm here with my co-host milana hey guys today we're gonna learn about a mid-20th century Post-expressionist abstract. I'm just throwing art words out. You really are. I mean, at least those (laughs) words stuck. She is a 20th century abstract expressionism painter. That. We're going to learn about one of those. (laughs) And then we're going to learn about a neo-Freudian psychoanalyst. I know what you guys are thinking. Fuck Freud. Yeah, he was a bit of a douchebag when it came to women. Oh, a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, that's intriguing to go into like a Freudian discipline, especially if you're like mm-hmm. a feminist. And everyone around you be like, uh, are you sure? You sure you got this? Be like, guys, don't worry. I got this. I got this. <laughs> she, I'm going to use the <laughs> evil against itself. Nah, she she was very much like, a, mm, I don't know if that's correct. That sounds like a nice way of being like, that's really fucking sexist. <laughs> well, like, I okay, so the thing, again, you know, most women are a product of their time, and it was more just her expanding on what he was saying, but, it, like, in a different perspective, going, well, I see what you're saying, but what if this is actually the case? And it got her into just some, some, basically some professional trouble later, but it's whatever. You know what? That doesn't surprise me because everyone like fucking worships Freud and he was, he was a bit of a dickbag when it came to women. So, I mean, who is unintentionally calling, calling him out then? Who is this neo-Freudian psychoanalyst? Her name is Karen Horney. I mean, that's cool. We had a Sir William Hooker last episode. We did have a Sir William Hooker, and now we have a Karen Horney. So she was born 1885 in Blankenese, Germany. And I don't even, is it Blankenese? Blank, you know, if boyfriend was here, he'd probably pronounce it for me because he loves German. But I don't, I'm going to just butcher this entire thing. 
So you're welcome. You know what? I took two years of German and pretty much nothing stuck with me. Zero things. But apparently it's really straightforward. I, I did learn how to say I have a very big snake in my pants, but I'm not <laughs> confident enough to announce that to the entire internet right now. So I'm just going <laughs> to gloss over that. You sure? Um, Can you please tell me about the snake in your pants, Megan? I think please. Well, it's been a while since I've had to whip out my schlong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ich habe ein gross schlong in eine pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the Dankeschön. closest thing to a correct pronunciation of a foreign language she will ever get to. So I hope you all appreciated that. <laughs> um, okay. Where was I? Yeah. So she was born <laughs> in this in this town I can't pronounce in Germany near Hamburg. Her father, I'm gonna call him Burnt Wackles. That sounds like a <laughs> Fucking mythical <laughs> creature from like a Jim Henson movie. <laughs> Burnt Wack. That's his first and middle name. Danielson's the last name, but it's Burnt Wackles Danielson. <laughs> okay. He's a uh, Norwegian and he was like a merchant marine, so he was like a ship's captain. And he was, like, super religious. He was Protestant. Uh, so he was, like, super rigid and, like, harsh towards, like, all of his children. And apparently he got the nickname Bible Thrower because he did actually throw Bibles at people. Oh, man. How godly of him. I, I, I smite know. you. And I smite you. <laughs> and you didn't eat all your fucking carrots at dinner. I smite you. It's <laughs> a lovely way to raise your children. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bur- <laughs> so burnt wackles <laughs> was <laughs> was married to a a Cl- clotilde clotilde i don't know man all you need to know about her is that she was a little more loose and like lax than dad was she was a bit more laid back okay all right well hopefully they complement one another uh they hated each other but okay. oh well you you know you know. Them arranged marriages. Dad was actually married once before. I think he was, he was widowed. Okay. And he had, she basically, uh, Karen has four older half-siblings. So she's technically got five siblings because she also has like a full brother through dad and mom. Okay. Who's like older. Yeah. Whose name is also Burnt. Might as well keep the good name going. Why not? I didn't see if his middle name was Wackles, but I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, she only really like grew up and interacted with her older brother and didn't really know her other siblings. So we only really need to know about one. Okay. Yeah. So like this is this is the kind of person Burnt Wackles Sr. was. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine a Muppet every time you say that. (laughs) With like a little background set of like those waves where some people hold on the other side and then you just go back and forth. (laughs) He's got his little captain hat on. (laughs) I swear to God, none of us are drinking. I'm not. I I have a lovely cup of tea. (laughs) 
It's lemongrass ginger. Oh, my God. Um, so, um, burn waggles. This is not, this is not funny. This is kind of serious. So, apparently her dad would tell her time and time again that she would never be pretty. And there are obviously multiple things wrong with that. The first issue is that a woman's worth isn't based off of her looks, obviously. <gasps> we all know that. Right? Uh, Brianna, I am, I've got some I am, shit to tell you about American culture. I am shocked. I am confused. Yeah. No. It's it's great. But obviously the, the second thing was that it really fucked with her. I mean, obviously it fucked with her. Her, her dad constantly going, you'll never be pretty. You'll never be pretty. You'll never be pretty. She decided, because she heard this so much, that if she couldn't be pretty... She would be smart, but she decided that at the age of nine. I mean, it's some heavy shit. Yeah. I mean, she yeah. went through her first bout of depression at nine years old because of the shit she went through as a child. Yeah. It's going to basically shape the way that she views the world and view her, like, her theories of psychoanalysis. So I'm also going to just put it out there that plenty of people thought she was pretty as well as smart because she was awesome. Just her dad was a dick. Burnt Wackles was a dick. <laughs> I just imagine the person who's got the Muppet and like he just slowly kind of raises up and like looks the puppet in the eye and just shakes his head in disappointment like Bert Wacklestein I expected better <laughs> slowly lowers stop being a dick so first bad of depression when she was nine however her choice to become a doctor popped up in her head when she was 13. This is apparently a problem. Neither one of her parents want her to be a doctor. Zero of them. But she was like, I don't care, I'm still going. So she entered medical school in 1906. And I think this was easier for her because honestly, her because mom and dad hated each other so much, when they were 19, mom left her dad. And they she took the kids with her. She was like, okay, we're all just going to leave now. How much of an age difference was there between... Her mom and her dad. Or when she was 19, her mother left him. Yeah, when when Karen was 19, her mother left. Oh, okay. Not when Karen's mother was 19, she left. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Yeah, and I guess Karen still lived at home because she wasn't married. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was easier. She wasn't really battling two parents. She was battling her mom. But both of them were like, I don't don't like this. Why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, So she... Gets into medical school. Okay, good stuff. Especially, you know, for the early 1900s for a woman. Right? That's a big fucking deal. University of Freiburg, one of the first institutions in Germany to enroll women. But apparently what was not uncommon is when people were going to become, like, doctors, they didn't stay at one university. They, like, bounced around. So that's what she did. She bounced from Freiburg to... I'm not even going to... Gottingen? Gottingen? Fuck that. She ended up in Berlin, University of Berlin, okay. and that's where she graduated with her MD. Yeah. I don't even know. That second one is G-O-T-T-I-N-G-E-N, but there's like two dots over the O, and I just... No, thank you. Um, She graduated in 1913, and somewhere in there, through her fellow students, she met who would later become her husband oscar horny 
And they married in 1909, so four years before she got her medical degree. They both relocated to Berlin for her to get her her doctorate. And he was already a doctor, from what I understand, so he was already doing clinics. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's that's a great support system to have. Yeah, and it's it's pretty great. I mean, like, for, for, for a little bit. Uh-oh. <laughs> A tiny bit. Wait, does your individual have a troubled marriage? Yes. Oh, well, what a coincidence, because mine does too. Oh, yay! Woo! Woo! Um, So, yeah, no, it was a really shitty marriage, but they had three daughters together between 1910 and 1916. One of them was actually, like, an actress. All right, cool. So, 1910, when she gave birth to her first daughter, she lost both of her parents as well. Okay. Was it like a fucking two for one special? Like mom, dad just took one another out or? I didn't really get those details in any of my. It's very weird. I, I Yeah. Doing research for this podcast just in general. It's it's really funny. Some of the details that get, that get left out. Like how did they just they were like, fuck it. And then killed each other or one had like cancer. The other one had like tuberculosis or they, they both. Had tuberculosis, went down together. They both. Our luck, they both had tuberculosis. Well, it sounds like if maybe one of them had it, I was like, asshole, and I'll cough on you, and that's it. That's all it took. So they died, and that's all I know. Okay. I mean, that sucks. It it does suck. I think maybe that was her second bout of depression. She had a few. She went to seek psychoanalysis to, like help her figure out what was going on. Yeah. Her analyst was a, like, a Freudian disciple. His name was Carl Abraham. She got really into the entire field that she just kind of, like, delve, like, dove into it. Okay. And he was her mentor. So not only was he her analyst, but he was her mentor at the Berlin Psychoanalytic Society. Oh, Okay. So in 1920, she helps design, basically, the Berlin Psychoanalytic Society's training program. And it was called the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute. So she was, like, a teacher there, and she helped design the actual curriculum. She taught students. She conducted research. And she did private sessions for people. Okay, so real quick. Yeah. So all, like, the ground-laying structure she's laying down within this program Mm -hmm. in Berlin, do you think, with her same credentials... She would have been able to do the same thing in the United States at the same time. Or do you think she just would have been shot down right away and everyone would be like, Psh, you're a woman? Like, no, no, I think she could. Yeah. Okay. I just, I really sometimes there's some places are just slower to catch up. No, 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 no. And I'll, you'll see why I think okay. so in a second. Yeah. So 1923, so three years after she helps design the curriculum, her husband develops meningitis. And she, he just becomes, like, insufferable. She really can't handle him. And then also, same time, her brother, who she loves, like, more than anything, dies of a pulmonary infection. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So that's about number three. So her mental health is just down the fucking toilet. She, there was, like, a point where she was, like, about to commit suicide. I think she wanted to drown herself. Okay. All right. It, like, lasts for a while, 
I would say about, I mean, it, I mean, they always last, those bouts always last a while, but it lasts until at least 1926 when she, like, separates from her husband. Okay, and by now she's in her 40s? Late 40s? Mm, yeah. Okay. Looks like it. Yeah. Early 50s, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they don't divorce until 1937. They don't finalize it until 1937. Okay. She and her daughters, they move out of the house and they continue and she continues to work at the society, except her thoughts are starting to deviate a lot from Freudian theory and Freudian discipline. So basically, she's getting backlash. And on top of that, she's worried about she's worried about Hitler. She's worried about Nazi Germany. She's not she's not loving what's happening. I mean, yeah, between Freud and Hitler, there's definitely one that I could put up with. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't like you, but we can make this work. We can make this work. Uh, so she she basically was like, I can't I can't do this anymore. And she actually accepts an invitation by a guy named Franz Alexander to become his assistant in Chicago at the Chicago Institute of Psychoanalysis. Get the fuck out. Bring your girls with you. Yeah. Fuck out. Yeah. She and her daughters moved to the United States in 1932. She's there for like two years and she's working on things. And then in 1934, she relocates to Brooklyn. And where there's war, there's going to be some heads that need to be shrunk, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Brooklyn was home to like a large Jewish community and still is home to a large Jewish community. But at that time, it was home to a large Jewish community that were refugees from Germany. Oh, my God. It's so funny you mentioned that because the person I'm doing, her family were immigrants and landed in Brooklyn. And she's living in there at the same time. What? Yeah. Yeah. As your doctor. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So she's like, she's going through and she's like shrinking heads and she's creating theories. She's making, she's making names for herself. And this is around this time where she is focusing on neuroses and personality. She's working at the New School for Social Research and the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. Okay. Now, do you know what neuroses is? Um, I'd wager negative fixations for individuals like maybe one thing like someone's really neurotic about um like they fixate on you know uh my child's gonna die in a car crash you know Eh, eh. i I don't know that's just my guesstimate okay so britannica.com defines it as quote starts here also called psychoneurosis or plural psychoneuroses Mental disorder that causes a sense of distress and deficit in functioning. Neuroses are characterized by anxiety, depression, or other feelings of unhappiness or distress that are out of proportion to the circumstances of a person's life. Okay. All right. So Horny would use data from her patients, and she basically was like, it's a continued process. It's always in a person. Um, Whereas... Like, it, it basically, it stems from, like, childhood, from, like, the parents and how they treated the, the child and how that child grew into an adult versus other people who are, like, no, it's from a traumatic event, not just from childhood, but from, like, a divorce or from, like, um, like a, an event, like a fire or like something. Like losing your job or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if the, uh, like, the parents would, like, 
make fun of the child. If the child was upset, then the child would feel like less emotion or less like empathy towards people. So the quote from the 1942 book that she she wrote called Self-Analysis was, quote, Direct or indirect domination, indifference, erratic behavior, lack of respect for the child's individual needs, lack of real guidance, disparaging attitudes, too much admiration or the absence of it, lack of reliable warmth, having to take sides in parental disagreements, too much or too little responsibility, overprotection, isolation from other children, injustice, discrimination, unkept promises, hostile atmosphere, and so on and so on. So, again, from early points. And she actually outlined needs that people who are neurotic tend to do. Okay. They're like coping strategies. Mm -hmm. And they're like split up into three different categories. So the first one is compliance. So they do these things as a process of joining or like self-effacing themselves into society or the people around them. Okay. The second one would be like expansion or aggression needs. So ones that are like Basically, things that establish power for themselves using anger or hostility. So the the, the people who um, kind of exhibit these particular like needs, they keep people around, but they don't really care about those people. They care about how those people can help their needs, their okay. own personal needs. Yeah. So like narcissists. Uh, and then the third one is like detachment or withdrawal. So people are coping by removing themselves from a situation, removing themselves from people, isolating themselves, and then also perfecting themselves. Like, they have to be perfect. They have to be the perfect person, and they have Mm -hmm. to be alone, away from the world. Needs one through three are the need for affection and approval, pleasing others and being liked by them. Number two is the need for a partner. Number three is the need for power. The aggressive ones are the need to exploit others, the need for social recognition, the need for personal admiration, Gee, I, the need I can't for personal think of a achievement. Political figure right now within American politics that <laughs> the need the need for self sufficiency and independence. <laughs> I'm ignoring that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's pretty bad. It's it's textbook. It's pretty gross. And then the last two, the ones that are like withdrawal, yeah. are the need for perfection, so perfecting themselves, and then the need to restrict life practices to within narrow borders to like live away from everybody else. So the theory is that well-adjusted people, they balance all of these needs and all of these strategies so they can still exhibit these things, but then they'll be like, they'll like... Self-adjust. They'll self-adjust. Okay. Yeah. For those who are neurotic, they overuse particular ones. Okay, as a, as a coping. They don't self-adjust, yeah. Mechanism, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like that's like a big part of like her, her thing was neuroses. Like no matter what she did, no matter what she did for like the feminist community, no matter what she did to challenge Freud, like her biggest concern was that of the neuroses and the human mind and how they coped with things from childhood. And a lot of that might even be just because, like, her childhood fucked her up. Yeah, of course, there's that morbid curiosity of deconstructing the experience, you know, something you went through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I I guarantee it was also very personal. 
and she wrote like tons of books, tons of journals on it. And that was her thing throughout her entire career. Mm -hmm. But she also touched on Neo-Freudianism. So like they take Freud's ideas and they expand on it and sometimes they'll contradict it. And she very much learned his way of thinking. She learned his theories. But specifically, she was critical of him on several key beliefs. The key beliefs that she's going against are his his obsession with sex. I mean, he's got some fucking sexual hangups like no one else. I don't even. He definitely made his work personal, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was like, look, sex and aggression are not the primary reasons people act. They're not the primary reasons people are the way that they are. Like, not everybody has a sexual hang-up. On top of that, she was not a fan of Freud's penis envy. Do you know what penis envy is? I'm just, I'm not a whole individual because (laughs) I don't have a phallic (laughs) appendage. Yeah, I don't have a phallic (laughs) appendage. It makes me less of a person. (laughs) And as such, I'm just constantly overcompromising for it. Um, Because, gosh, darn it, I just... I mean, yeah, I could go and buy a strap on that'll outdick any dude, but I mean, still, it's not the same. Not the same. It's not the same. Nope. So, she, she was like, "Nah, you're just, you just." I think them. I think she was like, "The closest you get, Freud, to this is the fact that like women are jealous of like men being powerful or having most of the power." And then she countered his penis envy with what she called womb envy. (laughs) Okay. And she was like, look, if women want penises, men want wombs. It happens just as much as the other. Um, And basically, she argued that, like, like men act certain ways because they're trying to compensate for not being able to carry a child to term and give birth. Mm -hmm. So they have to, like work extra hard from like external sources to feel like a self-actualized human being whereas women all they had to do was carry a baby and pop it out oh man i was reading something about this a while back and i don't remember the finer points of it but it was really fascinating because it was that point exactly yeah i mean like it was it was very much like a Fred. i think you like missed a step it's not about your dick yeah like calm your tits everything's fine <laughs> calm your dick (laughs) oh my god and then she's like okay also freud your oedipus complex that's bullshit too (laughs) (laughs) and we all know what that one is i want to like marry my mom if i'm a dude i want to like marry my dad if i'm a girl and that's actually that was that was a positive he has two i didn't know that he had two different oedipus complexes he called the one where like if it was like a heterosexual kind of relationship, that was what he called the positive one. And the one where like the son wants to like fuck dad instead of fuck mom, that's the negative one. Uh, yeah, he was not groundbreaking in his explorations of gender and sexuality at all. Just a, just a piece of shit yeah. is what he was. Well, she was again. She went back to the the relationship between mom and dad is based off of the relationship between mom and dad and the interactions we've had with mom and dad from early childhood. So, if mom is more loving than dad, 
we're going to like mom more. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Not that we want to fuck mom. No, we just, you know, prefer to have conversations with mom over dad because mom doesn't throw a Bible at me. Yeah. You know, little things. Yeah. So she was like, calm your tits, Freud. My, like, I'm going to apply, like, a humanistic point of view instead of a sexual penis-centric one. Okay. And people were like, no. That's weird. (laughs) And what made it even worse is that she accidentally stumbled upon feminine psychology because when you take away the, like, the power of the penis over the human mind... You start to explore the issues and the psychological needs of people without penises. Wait, wait. You're, Milena, you're just talking about lesbians. Let's be honest. Clearly, clearly I'm talking about lesbians, right? Or, you know, just women. (laughs) That too. I I have it on good standing that most lesbians are women. Yeah. (laughs) No, she like, she stumbled across feminine psychology. Dun, dun, dun. Because you take away the penis, you start to realize that there are people who aren't just men, and they matter. Crazy. <laughs> uh, it's so sad, but it's true, and that shit still goes on today. So from, like, I, it's, like, from, like, 1920s, early 1920s to, like, 1937, I believe, is when she stopped. She had, like, a feminist psychology kick where she started creating, like, um, papers that focused on the problems women faced. And they were actually all later put into, like, a single volume titled Feminine Psychology. Okay. it would There would be things like the distrust between the sexes, where she was basically saying the relationship between a husband and wife, it was like a parent-child relationship. One is the one who, like, guides the relationship and has more power over it, and the other one just kind of follows suit. Maternal conflicts, what it's like to be a mom of adolescent children. Everything's on fire at all times. All <laughs> times. <laughs> so these are all like pointed out that because they rely on men to be humans, women don't need to be fully formed humans and therefore don't realize self-actualization. And then therefore that causes mental issues that causes like neuroses to happen. I mean, yeah, when you're dependent on anyone to like complete you whatever role platonic or romantically like you're never going to be fulfilled because like you said that's it's always going to be a matter of someone else doing the work for you you have to and i'm going to scream it louder for the people in the back you have to be whole by yourself and then everything else follows through yeah i mean having a, a solid partner is a nice bonus but you know by no means as i say someone who's been in a serious relationship for quite a while don't tell him, but he does not complete me. <laughs> I love him. He, would, he makes me a better person. That's how it should be. But don't need to depend on someone else to make me complete. I think he would have like a breakdown if he heard that. Well, yeah, because that means he's not getting the cuddles. And I've already said too much. <laughs> You've already said <laughs> But yeah, no, I can totally get on board with that. But yeah, when you're always looking for completion in someone else. Chances are you're going to have a very, very, very hard time finding it. That's one of the next things that I was going to talk about is that she also looked into the theory of the self. So, like, a person has a real self and a fake self, and the real self is who you actually are, and the ideal self is the one that your real self wants to be. And in a normal person, that ideal self helps you grow because you have goals that you're working toward. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And like somebody who's neurotic, and we all go back to the neuroses because that's what she was into. The person who the real self looks at the ideal self goes, why the fuck am I not like the ideal self? Why am I not perfect? And then spirals. Therefore, it does not allow space for growth or self-care and doesn't realize their full potential. And that that just kind of gets into a circle of what I'm going to call circle of poo. (laughs) (laughs) Until they basically figure themselves out, get some sort of mental help, or they have a self-awareness kick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, when was, you said her work was compiled and then published under that singular text. When was that? When did that come out? 1967. So after her death. It was compiled into one. It was just a bunch of journals and publications that they compiled into it. These feminist papers were sprinkled throughout her entire career because they worked towards her bigger field of neuroses and what could cause it and how to, like, handle. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just asked because there are some really pivotal publications like um, The Feminist Mystique that came out. And that Mm -hmm. was, I want to say late 50s, early 60s. I forget the publication date, but... um, That builds on a lot of those concepts that you're describing within her work. That was a really important text. It was a a woman who kind of saw these things from an analytical standpoint and was able to write about them in more of a conversational tone. And so that combination really made things accessible to like the average woman and in this case like the average housewife. Right. And kind of reaching across these barriers and being like, Right now, especially in the 1950s, we have such a wave of unhappy women. What's going on? And to an extent being like, no, let's examine these larger social circumstances and be like, this shit's fucked up. Here's how it's fucked up. And here's how we can move forward. I mean, unfortunately, it's so straightforward and like, duh. But I mean, it took these women and I'm sure to an extent, these men calling this shit out to right. make these changes. Right. And we're still going. Still dealing with it. Um, Yeah. So... 1941, Horney became the dean of the American Institute of Psychoanalysis, um, and that was, like, a, another training institute where she was, like, a teacher, and she, like, created the curriculum, and she founded that after becoming dissatisfied with all of the strict Freudian bullshit, but because of her deviation from it and, like, everybody was, like, looking down on her, she eventually ended up resigning, and she continued to teach at the New York Medical College until her death in 1952. She never retired. There you go. Going strong. Yes. And and a clinic was named after her. It was called the Karen Horney Clinic. It was opened in 1955 in New York. And it was also an institution to teach and to research um, psychoanalysis. And it's kind of like a low-cost clinic for those who really needed it. So helping the community. Oh, there you go. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like, like she's definitely, whether she knew it or not, she's definitely a figure in the feminist world, a, like a, a figurehead, because she was the one going, you know, not everybody has a dick and that's okay. I mean, I just think of how pervasive that is in, in you know, society. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, she was it was to the point where she had to retire because nobody would like, like she had to resign from her post because people were like, but that's not that that makes no sense. You have to want a dick. What's wrong with you? I know. And it's it's so hard with the, all those. It's just how harmful those type of that, that logic can be and how long it takes to undo all that work. All of that shit. That circle of poo. Yeah. 
All right. So your scientist, Karen, it seemed like professionally she was always kind of in the shadow of a much larger figure that she was kind of going against and trying to shift things around. That asshole Freud. Yeah. My artist also kind of lived in the shadow of someone else that, I mean, even decades after her death, we're still trying to, you know, see her for an individual. I am doing Lee Krasner. I'm sorry, who? Lee Krasner? No? Doesn't ring any bells? I'm sure if you tell me more about her. All right. So Lee, she's been described as a lot of things, as ugly, a bitch, a sharp businesswoman, a major figure in the American abstract expressionism movement. But despite all that, she is unfortunately most well known as Mrs. Jackson Pollock. Oh, no. Yeah. See, you know her. You know her. It's not by name. I hate myself right now, but okay. I mean, don't, because I, I knew of her, but I mean, I'm generally just bad with names, but I couldn't tell you much about her as an individual. And for most people, like Jackson Pollock is an artist that they can name. I mean, he's a huge figure in American modern art. Right. And Lee Krasner helped make that happen. Her and Jackson, they were together for 11 years. I mean, just over a decade. And that's what it took for his work and his death to completely overshadow her life. And like I mentioned, even today, decades after her death, I mean, there's still challenges of presenting her work on its own merits. So I hope you're ready because today we've got a good dose of some old-fashioned American sexism. Oh, good. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, it's not uniquely American. That's not something, you know, it's all on us. It was definitely German, too. Yeah, them Nazis. I got a lot of shit that went on, but that's a different story. Now, Lee was born Lena Krasner, two S's, in 1908 to Jewish-Russian immigrant family in New York City, which is funny because, like, what you mentioned in your bit, um, it was Brooklyn that they settled in and they lived in. Oh, cool. She was the sixth child and the first to be born in America, and growing up, that did make a bit of a difference. Her family came over from an area that is now Ukraine. They're fleeing some pretty heavy anti-Semitic persecution, which is just a really nice way of saying that there were mobs raping women, killing men, and literally tearing babies apart. Uh, oh, oh. Essentially, it was time for them to get the fuck out. Yeah. So her father, he went ahead to the United States first, so that way he could save up some money to have his family join him. And they, they did. And... Pretty much exactly nine months after her mother arrived with the rest of the children, Lee was born. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, needless to say, was very happy to see him. They uh, they missed each other. They, huh? they did. <laughs> um, also, it would have been a little weird if she was born even like eight months after she arrived. Yeah, how do you... <laughs> I'd be like, honey, she, mean, she came early, I swear. Like, Yeah, like a preemie, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I love you. <laughs> Um, and then she had a younger sister, Ruth, who she was born two years after her, and she was the, the last uh, child of the family. Now, typical of an immigrant family, they settled in an immigrant neighborhood in New York City, which kind of curiously, like at the time, on the outskirts, and it was it was rural, which I have a hard time imagining. New York City? Today. Yeah, it was East New York. But like, like the principal of the school would complain about the cows next door at the farm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know anything about New York, so I don't. I just that's got to be that's highly unlikely. Are we? Are you sure? Yeah, it just there's been so much development that's gone on, and you know, the, the last century and a half that it's it is 100 percent not like that today. 
But in the early 1900s, they were still technically a good bit out of, you know, Manhattan and the city proper that to say she grew up in New York City doesn't really convey just how she grew up. And it was very, um, I mean, it was a lower class immigrant neighborhood, but she had a fun time growing up, you know, seeing all the different animals and the wildlife around her and all the different plants. That was something she really enjoyed and, and still was in New York City. I thought that was kind of curious. Yeah, no, that's really weird. Yeah. Well, you know, times change. Shit gets overpriced and overdeveloped. Mm. Now, growing up firstborn, generation American in her family, it did put her at odds at time with her parents. One aspect of it was her older siblings and her parents around the house, they spoke Russian and Yiddish. And Lee knew a bit, but not enough to really be able to immerse herself and talk like the family. Yeah, I know how that feels. Yeah, I it, it does create this otherness. So Joseph and Shane Krasner, her parents, um, they were two very hardworking people. They ran a fish stall uh, in a grocery store, which, I mean, to, ha- to sell fish at that time meant they had to go into the city proper, like before sunrise, to get to the markets. And that took over an hour. And then to get back with your fish on ice, and then you'd have to sell it all by the end of the day because that product's going bad because you can't keep it overnight. There's no refrigeration. I mean, that's that's fucking tough. And they did that day after day. It's not 2019, guys. I know. I, I think she got a lot of her determination and stubbornness from her parents. Now, when she was asked what her parents thought of her wanting to be an artist, the general attitude was, do what you'd like, but don't expect anything from us. That's fair. Yeah, and it was just very matter-of-fact. It wasn't meant in an asshole way. It was just, they're already doing everything they can to support their family, I think an artist is going to be really tough. So it was very much a good luck. We love you. Mm-hmm. This is all you. Yeah. Yeah. So like I mentioned, very multicultural neighborhood because it was it was a lot of immigrants. And later on, that experience did affect how Lee viewed herself as an American artist. And Lee really disliked that term, given that it was typically used for white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, growing up, she was close to her little sister, Ruth, um, and also her older brother, Irving. And he helped really expand her intellectual interests, reading to her Russian literature and poetry, and also exposing her to different cultural movements at the time. And it's speculated that Lee was dyslexic, so having a sibling that would read out these texts to her, you know, probably helped. Now, the family was raised Orthodox Jewish, and in her biography, Lee does say that she was into it. and But eventually they reached a point where she started wondering, like, why do the women have to go upstairs? Why are we separate? And that was the point she started pulling away from the faith. And uh, eventually one day she stormed in the house and was like, I'm, I'm not Jewish anymore. Shit. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like she was already so rambunctious. Everyone was like, all right, if you say so, like, it's another thing, kind of. Yeah, I feel like, and this this might be... I don't know. It, it it might be very wrong, but I feel like removing a Jewish identity is a lot harder than removing, say, a Catholic or a Protestant identity. Like, it is a religion, but it's also very much, very much like a culture. It was the faith she was at the time as a teenager more just interested in. And things do factor into her work later on. But as a teenager, she was like, eh, nah, I'm not really interested in this. Uh, what she does throw herself into, though, is her education. I mean, kind of unique because she was really focused. No one else was necessarily pushing her, but she wanted the best schools that, for her, would offer the best art education. And at the time, there was only one high school within New York that offered that. And she was accepted in, and it was an over two-hour commute 
just to get into Manhattan every day for school. Holy shit. Yeah, because again, even though they're still in New York, you know, we don't have the public transportation system in place just yet. So it was it was a bit of a hike. It was an hour each way. But if anything, I mean, that just kind of shows just how serious she was to get a proper education. And she had an art teacher that passed her on because she was doing great in all her other subjects. But within their art class, she just wasn't doing the best. And the teacher was like, oh, look, I'm not going to fail you. Here's a passing grade. Just good luck, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, for Lee, she was very dedicated and she had a lot of perseverance for it. And I feel like a lot of the time that that'll outdo the kids that do have more like, quote, talent in the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. And I, I mean, it definitely worked for her favor by the time that she passed away, which is a very cryptic way of putting it. But her work ethic definitely stayed with her the rest of her life and paid off. Now, during high school and then later college, Lee did change her name, eventually settling from Lena to Lee Krasner, dropping mm. the second S in her surname. And for children of immigrants, that was that was a fairly common thing to do to Americanize your name. And for Lee, too, that might have been another way of really asserting her own persona as herself, as an individual. Now, one thing that's really funny, like you mentioned with Uh, Karen, how she kind of bounced around for her education. Lee did the same thing. And it's pretty crazy, like reading about all the different schools that she went to, not in the different schools she went to from program to program, you know, depending on who's teaching, but that all these art programs at the time were tuition free. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like pay for the art supplies and you're good. Not like our typical like 20 grand a semester, welcome to student debt, but more like if you can get accepted in, you're fine. Holy shit. And we're talking like the 19-teens too. Like 1920s. We were born in the wrong fucking generation, Megan. I mean, shit's fucked up or that's the case now. Shit is fucked up. So I just, I don't know, that was pretty crazy. And, you know, for the period that Lee was coming of age, I mean, she had a pretty solid art education. She got into that only girls art-focused high school. And then she went on to Cooper Union, which at the time was a very unique tuition-free school that was aimed to be open and free to all. And from that school, it, it actually set the model for what we now know as continuing ed classes. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was just, it was a wealthy guy who started, a wealthy industrialist that started the college. And he had a pretty shit childhood and kind of didn't have access to education. So he started the school wanting anyone to have that opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was pretty cool. That's unreal. Yeah. And then later on, she studied at the National Academy of Design. And that was a, a traditional formal art school. And it was there that she really started running into some heavy sexism. Now, having on to an art focus all girls high school the idea of a woman being an artist was totally natural. I mean, that's in part why they had that specialty high school just for girls. But at the academy, she dealt with some pretty sexist notions of women being inferior to men. How? Like, they were limited in their education. Like, women didn't have the equal access to the classes that the institute offered. That's such... What? It, no, it was bullshit. Like... Oh, is it? Is it... Was it, like, like the nude classes? The... Yeah. So historically, that was very much a thing. It was, you know, indecent for women to see nude models. So that was a thing. Not so much here. This is like, this is weird. I came across in her biography. If you were interested in sketching like fish, that was in the basement because it was kind of away from the other classes because fish are gonna fucking stink. No one wants to deal with that. It's also a little cooler down there. So your specimens are going to keep longer. Because again, we're talking like 19 teens, 1920s. So in order to do that type of life drawing from these these animals, you have to be in the basement. Well, the basement was off limits 
to girls, to women. What? Why? They thought it was fucking stupid, too, and her and her friend actually protested it and went stomping down in the basement, and they got suspended for it. <laughs> I know, it's something stupid, but they were just like, fucking why? Like, why? Yeah, big like, deal. If we want to be able to draw fish, let us draw fish. That's so stupid. That's almost as... No, that's probably dumber than when we got suspended. I, yeah, I don't want to go into that. It was silly. <laughs> But so, I mean, she ran up against these things. Um, one thing, a good friend of hers was a really good artist, like one of the best in the class. And the teachers would kind of taunt the boys and be like, you better watch out for her. She's she's going to win this prestigious award. Well, the fucking kicker was the prestigious award they were talking about at the time didn't accept work from women. Oh, so no. So it was just kind of an insult into the student's face of like, Psh, who cares if you're good enough to actually win it? You can't because, oh, yeah, you're a girl. Ugh, so fucking stupid. Uh, and it was here. I mean, she even had a professor say about her work, quote, this is so good. You wouldn't believe it was done by a woman. Tell me that she punched him in the face. Not quite. And that's one thing about Lee's life is that she was really coming of an age and professionally working. Oh, there's a lot of sexism. That was just pretty okay. That was everyone. Every, that was everyone's, you know, kind of day to day standard. She had a thick skin and she fucking dealt with it because she didn't have the opportunity to be able to walk away from it because it would mean walking away from her education and her professional opportunities, which is pretty shitty. But she dealt with it. Now, here's another thing that's kind of shitty. So Wally is like totally immersed in art school. She's 19. It's 1928 and her older sister rose passes away unexpectedly and that leaves behind a husband and two young children now per the old world custom as the oldest unmarried daughter in the family it was up to lee to marry her brother-in-law and raise the children as her own um no yes that is exactly what lee said what? I didn't sign up for this shit. <laughs> pretty, pretty fucking much. That would have been a really interesting discussion to be able to sit in on around the family table or in the, the living room. Well, here's one thing that does kind of make it sad. As you noted, Lee said politely, probably fuck no. Nope. Which meant that the responsibility then fell to her younger sister, Ruth, who accepted... <gasps> no! And she she never forgave Lee for it. Oh, man. They were never on good I'd... terms after that. No. No. Yeah, to completely assume that role. And she she did. Um, Why didn't her other sister say no? So their older sisters, they were married. So it was just Lee and Ruth. They were 19 and 17 at the time. They were the only oh unmarried God. ones in the family. And oh like I said, old old world customs that's what was expected lee said no but her sister just for whatever reason didn't have it in her to to handle it the same way Mm-mm. i would have said no I no know. no i know no yeah after that their relationship was was never the same hey if my brother dies i have to marry you oh stop it that's not how this <laughs> works <laughs> race scruffy butt <laughs> why won't he let me hug him (laughs) whatever they're probably spooning together right now in bed yeah they're definitely spooning right now he's filling the Megan void with a dog Uh, pretty much 
what I'm worth. All right. Well, moving on from that. Um, one of the reasons Liu was able to say politely fuck no to that family request is because come the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, we've got this whole like feminism thing emerging, like for realsies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an idea of the new woman, which I've t- touched on before in previous episodes, uh, which is essentially just a woman living for herself first, not what society thinks she should be doing. Uh, we've got the suffrage movement, which in 1920, you know, gave American white women, white women, <laughs> you know, the right to vote. So culturally, there are these very slowly changing trends as to what's expected of women. I feel like living in New York City, Lee realized that there was a lot open to her and she was not going to let an old world custom as also like a woman who you know is very much american kind of renouncing her family's old world way of doing things you know stifle her life and get in the way of her art making right yeah so i yeah i'm sure yeah her younger sister was not fucking happy at all nope now going to school lee was she's very outgoing she's a popular figure you know new york city at the time fairly condensed art scene and she came to know, like, a good many artists and professionals in the field. Now, New York art scene's still kind of small, because at the time, Paris is still where it's at. Come the 1920s, 30s, to an extent, it didn't matter what education you had, you know, who you trained under, what art you were making. If you were a woman, expectations were you would go to college, find a husband, and settle down. No. Yeah, that was kind of the fun stuff. Like, you were kind of disregarded. Like, you still weren't taken seriously. Like, even if you went and got an education, like, even if you trained it or some, like, really well-to-do artist, like, you're still a woman. You're probably just going to get married and have kids, and that's going to be it. And later on, one of Lee's college friends advises her own daughter not to become an artist. Her friend doesn't want her daughter to deal with all the sexism that she dealt with, and, you know, by, by now years after the fact, which is pretty shitty and depressing. Now, when Lee did fall in with what is described as one of the the most attractive students at the academy, <laughs> a fellow Russian immigrant-born artist, and Igor Pantov. Igor, mm, I know, I know. How like old school Russian? <laughs> Not the sexiest name, but apparently I'm told he's a very sexy person. He acted as an in for Lee into the men-heavy inner circle of leading young contemporary artists in New York City. Interesting. Her relationship to him, it was legit. They were in a pretty serious relationship. Essentially gave her cred to be in those serious art circles. Street cred. Yeah, pretty, it was just shitty. That's how it worked. And like later on in their relationship, like they'd say they were married. But unfortunately for Lee, she's got pretty shit taste in men. Oh no. Yeah, eventually Igor left to go visit his family in Florida and sent her a letter back saying like, hey, I'm just not gonna come back mm. like way to be an asshole and just kind of disappear on me and then just be like yeah. hey we're through we're over after like 10 years after 10 fucking years yeah drinker like would cheat on her and shit but whatever Ew. yeah yeah well don't worry because it shit gets worse oh goody I, but like i kind of mentioned like i think lee put up with his bullshit behavior for men because at the time that was normal yeah yeah, they expect that. Yeah, she didn't have the luxury to walk away from it because that meant walking away from a lot of different opportunities. Her in, yeah. Which is shitty. It's shitty. But a lot of casual sexism. God, like this one friend and classmate of hers, he wrote her a letter in 1941 lamenting, quote, Why there's so many women except yourself and a few others so dumb, so echoing, talk, talk, talk about nothing. Ew. Yeah. Like just some casual sexism. And then later on, he remarks, quote, Krasner, I like and dislike your voice on the telephone. You sound so blasé. I like you better when I see you. 
It, yeah. What? Like, at this point, they're in their fucking 30s. They're adults. They're adults. And, I mean, he's a good friend. Ew. Casual sexism. Yeah. But, like I mentioned, rejecting that shit would just limit herself professionally. And she did consider herself a pretty tough cookie. And, you know, so she's just like, well, whatever. I'll just fucking deal with it. Like, not going to let it get under my skin. Uh, which, I mean, kudos to her. It worked. But unfortunate that she even had to be like that to begin with. Uh-huh. Now, just as Lee was launching a professional career in 1929 at the age of 21, stock market crashes bringing on the good old Great Depression. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, we thought we graduated from high school to shit time with the housing market collapsing. But, um, hey, on the upside, the Museum of Modern Art opens. Oh. Which, for a young modern artist... That's a really big deal, especially when you can't, like, go and Google artwork, you know, to see what's going on, like, across the pond. Fair. Yeah, so that was a really big deal. But it was a really tough time for her and her family. A fire destroyed their house. So along with it, it was all her early artwork. Since it's the fucking Great Depression, she had a hard time finding work. And eventually she did work for a program that we've covered before in different episodes, like episode four and ten. The Works Project Administration. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was that was essentially developed by Roosevelt just to put artists to work. It inspired by a, a Mexican mural program, which we go on pretty solidly in other episodes. So, I mean, that's how Lee fell into making WPA murals across the city. And that skill set, working large scale doing paintings, um, came in really handy later on in her career. So there was that. Now, while Lee is figuring out life in the midst of the Great Depression, barely scraping by, she's doing the art making. Right. Which, I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, definitely coming of age, like in a time like that, that's so easy to put off art making. Like, you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like you do, but I feel like other people just, that's one more thing they could have cut out to make their lives easier. But I mean, she didn't. Right. She stuck with it. Her first important surviving piece of art is from 1930, time she's 22. And it's a, a painting she used to get into the upper classes within the academy that she had to apply for. A uh, self portrait that she painted over the summer while at her parents' house. And about it, she said she had to, like, nail a mirror to a tree in order to paint it. So it's a self-portrait of her at an easel, and then you can see all the trees behind her. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a realistic painting. It's loose in brush strokes. When she presented it for a critique, they criticized her for making an indoor painting look like an outdoor one. What? They didn't believe that she painted it outside. What? Why? And what? What? Again, some good old sexism, like... I don't really understand why that's a problem. I'm so confused. Because it's it's easier to be inside of a room and oh to have your God. easel and your oil paints oh and your God. whole setup. It's a little tougher to be outside and painting and, you know, dealing with the heat and the, she complained about the bugs. Um, your lighting's going to be a little bit more uneven. And so the natural inclination was to be like, well, I don't believe you actually did that. Oh, my Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And good old bit of sexism in this one. I mean, I mean, overall, it's a very self-assured portrait. And she's presenting herself as a serious artist. And later on, as she's developing her own style, the influence of current art styles is evident. You know, things like cubism. Before she does settle into her, her own way of doing things. And the artists that she respects really influence her early work. So we're talking about some really big names like Picasso and Mondrian. Mond- okay, I know Picasso. I don't know the other you, one. You do, because he's the one that's done those paintings that are stark white with all the black grid lines filled with yellow, red, and blue. Oh, for the love of God, you've seen his work. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. If Google I, it. If Google I it right now. If I have, it wasn't memorable. 
oh, that shit is everywhere on posters and fucking converses and scarves. Okay, hold on, hold on. Let me Google it's this shit. It's a super hold popular on. design. You know it. Ugh. How do you spell his fucking name? M-O-N-D-R-I-A-N. Oh. Yeah, see, you know it. Even if you're not familiar with his name, it's just such an iconic design that he worked with that it's so easy to slap that style on anything and everything. Mm, yep. So, I mean, those guys, him and Picasso, really influenced her her use of color and the line and movement and everything. Not until she's in her mid-30s in the 1940s that Lee really transitions fully into abstraction, in part becoming part of the first generation of American abstract painters. Um, Now, of course, at the time, she doesn't fucking know that. She's just working on a body work called her little image series. Right. And they're all, they're good size oil paintings. And they're filled with these really repetitive, almost letter-like symbols and these very subdued colors. And it kind of touches on her learning Hebrew, like these these different characters are not quite letters. So later on in life, she, she does pull from her religious background and, you know, incorporating that into her abstract work. Overall, brushwork, very loose. But they're very densely rendered. She really packs in a lot of lines into her paintings. And it's it's later on that she kind of loosens up a bit in, uh, in her line work and the spacing and everything. It gets a little bit more loosey-goosey as her work goes on. Now, with how immersed and well-connected that she is in the New York art scene, Lee does she does well for herself. Uh, she's invited in some really big shows, and one in particular with some very big names. Now, like I mentioned, Lee had really shitty taste in men. After her 10-year relationship with Igor was over, you know, she's still painting, and she was invited in 1941 to be included in a group show with some really big names like Picasso and Matisse and this new guy, Pollock. Mm. Yeah. Run away! Yeah, pretty fucking much. I mean, they loved one another. They got rough. And for anyone who's not familiar, he's the guy that does those drippy splatter paintings that most people are like, my kid could do that. Was that the he peed on his artwork too, right? I don't know about peeing. And you say too, like who else is peeing on their artwork? No, like he also just that was part of it. I'm pretty sure it's the same one I'm thinking of. He like he like use the oxidation of his urine to create somebody one of those fuckers did that it was stupid you know what it wouldn't surprise me and he was also a very heavy drinker so he might have unintentionally peed on some of his paintings that wouldn't surprise me when lee did see his work she says of it quote i was confronted with something ahead of me i felt elated my god there it is I lunged right over, and when I saw his paintings, I almost died. They bowled me over. Then I met him, and that was it. Like, she was completely Ew. sold on him. Yeah, saw his work, loved his work, saw him. was like, yeah, all right. Um, and pretty quickly, they were a couple. He was the introvert, you know, always quiet in the studio, and she would bring people over, you know, to tour and show off his space. She was really committed to seeing him and his work grow. Like, she was completely on board. Guess if you love someone, you gotta, like stand behind them oh and she did and to an extent totally backfired on her because i'm sure that her artwork fell by the wayside because of it uh yeah yeah pretty much yeah she connected him with a really wealthy and influential art collector called sydney janice and from that jackson got his work into the museum of modern art and doing that got him connected to another really big art collector, a Peggy Guggenheim. 
Jesus Christ. And Guggenheim might sound familiar because there's the Guggenheim Museum. Yep. 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 Um, and she is one of the most influential American modern art collectors. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, like, she really helped facilitate post-war abstraction because with her wealth and her connections, she was able to save art and artists that was threatened by the Nazis during the war. You know, and then suddenly we've got all these artists coming over to New York City, and that's what shifted Paris from being the hub to New York City. Mm. I mean, in part because he was this really wealthy, important person who's able to actually fucking get the artists over here. Right. I mean, that was just one part of it, but I mean, needless to say, Peggy is fucking important. Emily did not fucking Damn. like her, like, at all. Oh, yeah, you can't burn bridges like that. No, they they did not like one another at all. Oh, no. But, I mean, Lee used all her connections to make that shit happen for Jackson. I mean, she's pulling from years of friendship in New York City just to hook him up. And then later on, Lee writes to a friend, quote, I showed Janice, the collector, my last three paintings. He said there were too much Pollux. It's completely idiotic, but I have a feeling from now on, it's going to be the story. Mm. Like, even Damn it. fucking right away. Yeah, because, I mean, at this point, she'd been working in painting for years. And they're both right. doing abstract work. I mean, that's that's the biggest trend at the time. Right. And then suddenly it's, you know, they see his work and suddenly everyone is like him. Hard not to be overshadowed by that. Yeah. But when Lee and Jackson, you know, Matt, they, they completely fell for one another. And kind of curiously, like at the time, it was fairly slim pickings in terms of men. Uh, we've got World War II in full swing and the majority of able-bodied young men, they've been pulled into the war effort. I mean, that, so you got to pick trash? Uh, well, I mean, she didn't know it at the time. And like her friend who wrote how he didn't like her voice on the phone, I mean, he was designing camo print. Ew. Yeah, well, I mean, you got drafted into the war effort. I mean, it, mm. as an artist, you're a little bit more useful than out on the front lines doing that. Now, Jackson, on the other hand, he had undergone treatment for alcoholism and other mental problems, and that made him ineligible for military service, which mm. oddly also gave him an advantage in the art scene because, because there was there less were competition. Less people, yeah. Yeah. Wow. A whole, it's, I, I never consider these finer points of things of how everything kind of facilitated one another, but I, that was definitely one aspect that played to his advantage. Mm. Now, with Jackson's connection with Peggy, Lee and him were able to get a house out on Long Island where they could both work and live. Jackson taking the barn while Lee painted in a small bedroom in the house. And they, and they moved there not long after the marriage in 1945. And while they were there, things were pretty stable. Jackson was getting money from the Guggenheim that allowed him to focus on painting, and Lee took up managing his work. I mean, she was still painting, but, I mean, like you mentioned, she kind of took on the role of manager for him. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, did take away from her own studio time. Uh, and creatively, their relationship was one that encouraged one another, with Lee doing most of the encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jackson's sister-in-law said of him, quote, he wanted his life to be free to paint. In order to do that, others had to do everything else. And he didn't want to be helped. He wanted to be taken care of. Ugh. Men. And Lee took care of him. Nope. No. Take care of your goddamn self. Yeah, but it just... Yeah, it's a whole hotbed of issues. There's so many things tied into it. And then in 1949, Life magazine featured him, asking, quote, Is he the greatest living painter in the United States? Which, like, rocketed his fame. And also really exasperated his alcoholism, his poor mental health, and all that cheating he was doing. 
great. I mean, hey, Lee, she was handling that, trying to take care of all that shit, trying to keep him stable. And, you know, as his work was becoming more unstable, I mean, Lee was actually doing really well for herself. She started a series titled Little Images and then a series of collages that she did. She made up of pieces of her own discarded old paintings. Right. And in 1955, she had a show featuring those collage paintings and a leading critic of the time called it one of the most important shows of the decade. Mm. And a year later, Jackson was dead. What? Just out of nowhere? Just dead? They'd been together for 11 years. And in 1956, Lee, she's she's out of town. She's actually over in Europe. Their, their relationship isn't doing too hot. Out on Long Island, Jackson was drunk as fuck. And he was driving mm. with a friend and driving with his mistress. And the car mm. crashed. Mm. And he was dead. And his friend was dead. The mistress was alive. Ah. 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 Funny how that goes. I know, right? And from then on, Lee managed his estate. She said, quote, After Jackson died, the load was far heavier on me than it was alive. He was painter number one, and the whole art world turned on me. It was like I wasn't there. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So one way that Lee handled the grief of losing her husband was throwing herself into her art. And after his death, the new series emerged, her earth green paintings. And within these like loose nature inspired paintings, abstract, always abstract, uh, Lee was able to consider kind of like the next stage of her life. And in a way, she was able to grow more with him out of the picture, which sounds really shitty, but. No, like that's what happens when you have a toxic person attached to you. Yeah, there's just, there was less <laughs> of a burden placed on her. And critically, people pan the works. They were like, it looks too much like Pollux, and it's too decorative. Oh, fuck that. Yeah, which in, like, art school term or art terms, being decorative is also essentially calling it, like, women's work. Just fuck off. Historically, oh my god, women's work was decorative art. Mm. Like pottery and textiles. Mm-hmm. Embroidery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, I took a look at her that series of paintings, her earth green, and I was like, I don't fucking get what they're talking about. How the fuck are you going to call this decorative? It's an abstract painting. There's just fucking paint on a canvas. Like, <laughs> I can't make heads or tails of it. It's just another layer of sexism going on. You know. But, I mean, there were, there was a positive reception to her work. But one thing that Lee could not shake was the constant comparison to her dead husband. With Jackson's passing in the years that followed, critics were really quick to point out her work through the lens of his own art, which is kind of in a twist. Lee herself helped promote his work and got it out there to a large, larger audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In part because she increased the sales price of his artwork, and that helped raise the status of not only his work, but abstract expressionism as a whole. Because when his work is selling so well, other abstract expressionism artists could sell their work for a similar price, Mm -hmm. which only helps reinforce the idea of it, Mm -hmm. which inadvertently helped reinforce the idea of Jackson against her own work. And so ever since his death, she was just always dealing with the idea of him and working under the shadow of him. Like, I am not my husband. I am not attached to him. I am my own fucking being. Like, ah... No. Now, attention for her work on its own. It did pick up in the 1960s and 70s. And that's as, you know, first wave feminism's going on in the United States. And when compared to, like, the hyper-masculine artists that dominated, like, the action painting of abstract expressionism, Jackson being one, Lee became seen as a transitional figure for abstraction into post-war American art. 
I mean, Lee's got, she's got a very dynamic role in American modern art. From series to series, she really challenged herself in technique and content, you know, while always working with an abstraction. At the age of 57 in 1965, she had her first solo retrospective. Oddly enough, not in New York City, but in a Whitechapel gallery in London. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it's just a matter of who she knew that helped facilitate that. And that right. same gallery Jackson had worked in previously for a show. And up to her death in 1984 at the age of 75, I mean, she kept working she lived between an apartment in the city and then go back to the house on long island and at that point you know she used the barn as her own studio space at a certain point she was like i'm not gonna let it go wasted like bitch it's my barn now yeah like she wasn't gonna idealize it for like oh my dead husband like no i'm an artist too like this shit like i can do bigger paintings here and it also has better light so six months after her passing, MoMA held a retrospective of her work, uh, and that really did cement her as leading artist in her own right, independent of her husband. But even today, women artists from the post-war period, I mean, they're still easily overlooked for really big names like Jackson and Rothko and De Kooning. And some of those are names of people that we knew personally. I mean, New York City was still a fairly small art scene in the 30s and 40s. So, I mean, it's kind of shady that the same people that she worked among have skyrocketed to fame, and yet... She's, like, stuck in a fucking shadow. Yeah, they're still catching up to do. And today, while Lee's work does command pretty top price, unfortunately for a woman's painting, it still falls behind work of comparable style that just happens to be done by a man. So, for instance, a top auction price for a Jackson painting? Do you want to guess? This will be fun. A top auction? Yeah, like, the most expensive expensive painting that someone's paid in auction like think of those big fancy places like sotheby's Mm -hmm. for a jackson two million oh you're so cute 140 million oh (laughs) what yeah that price ranks currently as one of the top 10 prices paid for a piece of artwork i would not pay that much money for that bullshit well for jackson pollock no, I I don't really understand abstract art. That's one thing that's lost on me. You know what? I'll be honest. I don't fucking get it either. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> and I am, I am super heavy into tightly rendered representational work. That's that's my thing. So abstract stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's nice. I like what you did with the blob. <laughs> Got some nice drips going on. That's that's cool. <laughs> oh, that's commentary on your childhood and the dualities of nature. And I'm sorry, what was it? Because it just sounded like shit to me. Like Bullshit. I don't. And that's not. It's easy to shit on. Yeah, but that's I mean, true. shit's out there. But yeah, so 140 million for a Jackson painting. Lee also just recently this year broke auction records. Top price for one of her paintings. 10 million. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh, my God. So that's Lee Krasner. Oh, my God. My heart is breaking, Megan. But, I mean, she is one of the few women that has had a retrospective at the MoMA. That's pretty cool. Yeah, like up to 2008, there had only been four women. So, I mean, things are changing, but... It is kind of shitty when I went in to read about her that, you know, it's very easy for it to be all about her husband. Mm-hmm. And not about her. Yeah. And then some of it I I didn't even really want to mention, but 
some people are very quick to, you know, talk about her hair and talk about how she dressed and talk about her facial features. And I was like, why is that important? I'm not fucking talking about that because I'm not reducing someone down to their physical elements because in this case, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, that's those aren't features she's using for her work. That's nothing relevant about what she's capable of as a person. And I just feel like that's such a standard of for any woman. Like, it's so it's so easy to default to that. I'm not going to tell you what she looks like. You're going to have to go to the show notes to see images of the artwork that we talked about and to see the scientist <laughs> or Horny Karen and to see Lee Krasner. And as always, if you've made it this far, you guys are pretty awesome. Pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I got for you this week, Milena. That's depressing on both ends. Yeah, but she, Lee pushed back against it. There's so many times it just would have been easier for her to stop her own personal work. And she didn't. She kept going. And I mean, that's what I really, you know, kind of commend in her and why part of part of why I picked her is because, you know, she she could have given in, but she didn't. All right. So, Milena, if people actually want to see pictures of the artwork and the scientists that you were talking about, where can they learn more about us and see some of the work? Absolutely. So we have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminists. You can reach us at info at myfavoritefeminists.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're listening on iTunes, go ahead, rate, and subscribe. It does help. And let us know in the comment section below, what kind of art don't you get? I think we both answered this one. I just... It's just fucking splatters of paint on a canvas. I don't get it. I don't. I don't. There's an art to it, and someone had to figure it out and push it as an art style, and I get it. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't get it. It's weird. So let us know what you guys don't like. All right. As always, you guys are pretty awesome. So until next time, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye. Come on,